Thank you, Eunice. Thanks for uh, sharing your testimony with us. Uh, thanks, everyone. Welcome in today uh, to our worship service. Um, thank you for being the church and for bringing it into um, wherever you are online as well as here uh, in person. Why don't we take um, just 15 seconds. Can you look at someone you haven't seen yet and just greet them in the name of the Lord? Just wave at them. You can say hello to them. Uh, feel free to, uh, to, to talk, um, but good to be together. Um, welcome, welcome. I'm positive that I have shared um, this true story of, of what happened um, many years ago. I'm sure I've shared it at least on, on one or two or three or four occasions here, but uh, I'm going to say it again because uh, sometimes the punchline, I'm sorry, the point is different. Sometimes it's similar, but um, it was probably like my second year as a youth pastor down here. I was, I was still very young, but my second year as a youth pastor, we were doing a, uh, it was Christmas time, and our youth ministry was doing a secret Santa gift exchange. And so um, we each got partners, we each got somebody that we're supposed to give, uh, and you signed up for it, and then everybody got a gift that they're supposed to, got a person that they're supposed to buy a gift for. And the limit was $15. So you had to get something around $15. And as um, people are bringing in their gifts and they're putting it down. It's got their names, the secret person's name on it. And so students were going up and they're grabbing and they're opening up and their $15 gifts, like back in, in, in that time, I don't know about for you middle schoolers now, but for a lot of middle schoolers, like a $15 gift was a big deal back then. That was like hitting jackpot. And so this is your one chance in life, in the year at least, in order to get something like that you really, really wanted. And so people were opening up their, their gifts and they were getting, their dreams were coming true. It was an amazing thing. And then it was my turn to get my gift, and so I went up, and there was a, a gift bag labeled with my name on it. So I was really excited, right? $15 gift for a seminarian is about as much as it is for a middle schooler. So I was really excited. I opened it up, and there was a can of Barbasol shaving cream. I was like, what the heck? <laughs> uh, my, I had a, a big old beard back then, and it was like out of control and completely unkempt. And so um, the person who was my secret Santa... Actually, I think about, you switch the letter, Secret Satan, <laughs> but Secret Santa was uh, a guy who really thought this would be really funny to give me a can of shaving cream. And so even though it was a secret, like we know who it was, this guy named John Mack, and John Mack was really excited about it. He couldn't wait. Like it was almost like he was waiting for my turn to come. And as soon as my name was announced, he started laughing. He was laughing so hard, so it was no secret who my guy was. His uh, face started turning red. He was laughing so hard. And when I opened it up, he couldn't contain it anymore. Was, he, he thought it was the most hilarious thing. And he was laughing, laughing, laughing. And he wasn't the only one who thought it was so funny. Because then other youth students thought it was so funny. They're like, ah, ha, ha, they're laughing. And they think it's so fun. The youth teachers are laughing. And they think it's so funny. People in the neighborhood around us were laughing. They thought it was so funny. Everyone thought it was so funny, except for me. <laughs> I didn't think it was very funny at all. In fact, I was very sad. I was like, man, this was like my $15 that was supposed to come to me, and I know for a fact that this Barbasol is not worth $15. So I was a little bit bummed about it. And as everyone was laughing at me, I felt like a scene from a movie. I don't know if you've seen like Carrie, like Stephen King's Carrie, where this girl is a high school student and she's being made fun of, or if you've seen Never Been Kissed, um, this girl named Josie is being called Josie, Grossie, Josie, Grossie, and they're all pointing at her laughing. I felt like that. I felt like I was in this movie and the faces of people who are laughing are like spinning around me and they're like, ah, ha, ha, and they like sound so scary to me and they're laughing. I felt like that kind of person. I was sitting there and as so I picked up my gift and I walked back to my seat. 
And I thought, this is the worst <laughs> Christmas gift ever. And then I was going back to my seat. John looked and he said, hey, uh, DL, I, uh, you don't see it, but I see something in there uh, that you don't see. <laughs> and so I looked underneath it and there's an envelope with a gift card. And the gift card, as I opened it up, I said, ah, ha, ha. And I was like, I was a good sport. I'm a good sport. And I opened it up. And that gift card was worth far more than the $15 limit that everybody else was receiving as their gift. And I thought to myself, sometimes the most valuable gifts come to us disguised as the things that we despise the most. And sometimes the greatest blessings of God come wrapped up to us in trials and hardship and suffering. Today, as we conclude this uh, series on pandemic-proofing our life, I want to talk about a final thought and a final lesson about the trials that we go through in this life um, because they're going to come. Uh, we don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know in what way, but they're going to come. And so I want to share to you from a letter written about 2,000 years ago it's, it's interesting because the person who wrote it, a guy named James, it's in the back of your New Testament. The guy named James grew up with Jesus. He was a younger brother, half-brother of Jesus. He was a biological son of Mary and Joseph. He was his, their biological son, grew up with Jesus, and never believed in anything about Jesus. Maybe something like you guys are thinking about, yeah, I can't believe this to be true. Can't be. That's what James was like. He didn't believe anything about Jesus. And then one day, about seven years before this letter was written, he saw his brother had been crucified and then had risen from the dead. And once he saw his half-brother, everything was different, like nothing could be the same. He ended up giving his life in order to testify that the fact that Jesus Christ, his brother, was the Son of God, was who he said he was. The letter of James is the earliest written part of the New Testament. So this is... The closest thing, that, the, the, the closest writing that we have to the life and time of Jesus. Between seven and ten years after Jesus lived, James was writing. And so what we have here in the book of James, if you read the book of James, you know that this is extremely practical. What James is saying is this is the purest picture of what it means to live out the faith of Jesus. It hasn't been tainted through years. This is the closest thing that we have to the heart of Jesus. And he tells us this is how we're supposed to live. And he talks about the trials in life, and he writes to a people, uh, the church. And as we'll soon see, he describes it as a tribes scattered amongst the nations. He's writing to people who are early believers, the earliest believers who are scattered throughout the world because of persecution. In, in Acts chapter 8, it says, as the church began to grow, persecution came to the church in Jerusalem, and they had to run to Judea and Samaria, and with the gospel, they would run ultimately to the ends of the earth. But this is the situation. The church is being persecuted heavily, and they're running for their lives into wherever they can go, and as they're going, they're spreading the gospel with them. And to that community, this is what James says in James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, okay, 12 tribes is a picture of the people of God, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is God's word. Somebody said this is the first four verses. This is what James says. He says, hey, guys, it's me, James. Life is going to be hard. There's no, there's no, how's it going? There's no, I've missed you guys. There's no, I hope you're doing well. There's no formality in it. It's just, hey, guys, it's me, James. Hey, church, life is going to be difficult. Maybe the people that he's receiving, writing this letter to, they don't need to be told that because they know that life is hard. As soon as they fasten their life to Christ, they begin to experience hardship and persecution. Maybe they didn't need to be told that life is going to be difficult, that trials are going to come. But perhaps it might have served as a comfort to, to them to know that James, the brother of Jesus, one of the disciples now, disciples of Christ, it might be comforting for them to know that he's saying this is part and parcel of your life. As we read these four verses, what do we see? There are three things that I want us to see and to be grounded in as we conclude this series on suffering and pandemic proofing our life. The first thing is this. You can't choose how or when the trials will come. You can't choose how the trials are going to come. You can't go to a vending machine and say, I'd like this kind of trial for 25 cents, please. I would like this one for a dollar, please. You can't choose how they're going to come, nor can you choose when they're going to come. We wish that we could because if we knew, somebody once said, hey, you know what, um, when, uh, I'm going to ask the Grim Reaper who symbolizes death, can you tell me exactly when and where I'm going to die? And so the Grim Reaper told, asked him why, and he said, because I'll do everything I can to avoid that place. And the Grim Reaper said, I'll do everything I can to make sure you're in that place when that time comes. We can't choose when the trials are going to come, nor can we choose how they're going to come. We wish that we could. In fact, we, uh, this, is, this is parenting, isn't it? We do whatever we can, at least initially, to insulate our children from any of the hardships that they might be able to face, they might potentially face. We get them the, the, the best kind of clothing, the best kind of swaddling cloth, the stuff that doesn't itch their skin. We get them the best brand newest, highest technology car seat and stroller, all of these things. We bumper-proof, cabinet-proof, uh, danger-proof, child-proof all the cabinets and everything within the home. We put sunscreen on even more than we're supposed to, SPF 1000, in the hopes that we can insulate our children from being hurt. We get tearless shampoo so that in the event that it goes in their eyes, it would not hurt them. Time magazine made popular this idea of helicopter parenting where we hover over our kids to make sure that nothing would potentially happen that could hurt them. And there was this one uh, couple, one set of parents that were interviewed. They said the insanity of our parenting started out innocent enough. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? We, did, we, just, we just didn't want our kids to get hurt. We didn't want them to get sick. We didn't want them to experience any kind of hardship in life. And so we gave them hyperbiotic foods. We gave them hypoallergenic clothing to make sure that nothing could potentially endanger them. We set up Wi-Fi even in the treehouse so that they could always communicate with us if they needed anything. We were there for them. 
We set up a tree swing so that they could have fun, but we took it down immediately after they skinned their knee on the ground. We did everything we could, and then it gets to this kind of levels of insanity where in a school in California, a freshman from Texas would go, and their parents would fly out and visit her every weekend in order to make sure that she was okay. We just wanted to protect our kids from the trials and the problems that might come in life. We do that too, don't we, with our own lives? We do a million different things to make sure that we can safeguard against the problems of life. Nothing wrong with that. We need to do that. Okay, we need to do that. This is why we wear masks. It's why we socially distance, why we worship online. We do a bunch of different things, but you could do all that stuff, did you know, and still get COVID. I talked with someone on Friday night. They said, you know what? They did everything. They didn't see anybody. They didn't go anywhere. They wore their masks. They did all that stuff, but somehow they got COVID. It's crazy. One of my friends in, in California, he had a heart attack a few years ago, had stents put into him. He said, I, nobody expected it. No one expected it. I was the healthiest guy. I ate the, the, the healthiest diet, cleanest foods. I exercised regularly. I, I ran and I biked. I did everything, and I got a heart attack. My friends say if Steve Chang can get a heart attack, then anybody could get a heart attack. That's what he says. We do a million different things to prevent the trials from coming, at least as much as we can. But then we're reminded by James, you can't determine, you can't control, you can't choose how or when the trials may come. This is what he says. Consider pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Okay, so listen to what he says. Whenever you face them, so you will face them, okay? There are many kinds of trials, right? You can't determine how they're going to come. And whenever you face them, literally he means whenever you stumble into it, it's like you're walking along and you don't see it and you fall into a trial. He's saying you can't determine. It's going to come. Yesterday, everything was fine. And then this morning, your world gets flipped upside down. You can't control it. I got a, I got a text message on, what was it, Thursday morning from somebody saying, hey, uh, woke up this morning. The washing machine had flooded. It was in the, in the second floor, and it had leaked into, through the walls and into the, the main floor, and it sunk down into the basement, and our deductible for that is $7,000. Insurance is coming out. We got fans blowing everywhere. We went to bed last night completely fine. We woke up this morning having to find a place to live, at least for the next few days, out at least $7,000. Go to sleep. Everything is fine. I remember a few months ago getting a phone call from my friend saying, hey, he's, he's crying. He never cries. Cries. Call in the middle of the day. Never get a call in the middle of the day. Hello. What's going on? Bro, you got to pray for us. This is happening, and it's not very good. Everything could be fine today, and then tomorrow the trials are going to come. You, you understand this simple idea of life in a broken world that we're not exempt from trials in life. Doesn't matter how young you are, doesn't matter how old you are. It's not like an AP exam where you can place out of it. If I do good enough, I can get, I can get out of this. It's not like the Korean military where you, you play well at soccer and you can get exempt from, from the trials of life. You can't do that. This is not an elective course in life. Trials and hardships will come and they will come in many kinds and many shapes and many forms. 
um, our family moved into a new home a few months ago and after a couple couple months ago and as we moved in we we're doing renovations and at probably about the 90 percent point when our renovations were done contractor said to me we're talking in the garage and and we all felt good about what was going on about 90 percent done he's like um, we're at we're at the finish line okay we're getting there we're going to be done we're going to be done i promise you we're going to be done and he said i swear to you this is the easiest job i've ever done in terms of like nothing has gone wrong nothing has gone wrong I was like, really? Like, it didn't seem that easy to me. It seemed like, you know, but you say so. He said, in, my, in all of my years of doing this, this is the easiest one. Typically, we'll patch one thing up and another thing will open up. The air conditioning will, will, will fail or electricity will, will fail or there'll be a massive leak somewhere. But this, this job, nothing. Right? This has been the smooth, smoothest. And he laughed and I laughed and all was good in the world. And then a couple days later, I was touching a countertop in our house, and I was like, why is it wet? There's no water anywhere around here. And I looked up, and I saw, wow, there was a mark on the ceiling. I opened up the cabinet drawer, and there was water in there. And I looked as I went to the other room, and I saw streaks on the ceiling, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Two days after, this is the easiest job. Nothing goes wrong. <laughs> The shower begins to leak because there was a clog that there was a clog in the drain that had never been cleaned out. And so the water had no place to go and it decided to go into the walls and into the ceiling. And that was the beginning of a series of unfortunate events. When we called our contractor, hey, can you come take a look at this? <laughs> he thought it was funny. <laughs> Do you remember when I said, I said, yes, I remember. Of course I remember that. You should have said it like never. <laughs> you should have said it when we're done. No, not even when we're done. should have said it never because we will fall into all kinds of trials in life. Everything could be fine today. Close on the home. You accept the offer. You get the good news only to realize that the next day, the next week, at any time, it can come on us. You can't choose when or how the trials of life will come. It's the first thing that we see here. Second thing that we see, but you can choose how you respond to them. Can't choose when or how or what, but you can choose how you're going to respond to them. That's why he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Then say, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face that short, simple, quick hangnail of a trial in your life. Then say, consider it pure joy when you face the relational difficulties only, or when you face the financial difficulties only, or when you face the job difficulties only. It says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many different kinds. There are many different kinds that can come, many different kinds that will. It says in the midst of that, consider it pure joy. This is, this is not my favorite verse in the Bible. Can I tell you that? I try to find a loophole. I don't understand this. Do you understand it? Consider it pure joy. Maybe consider it not terrible <laughs> whenever you face trials of many kinds. Maybe consider it joy. Right? I understand that, but he said this is the purest kind of joy. 
that you could face, that you could experience. Whenever you're facing trials of many kinds. Well, maybe there's a loophole. You've been talking about Greek, DL. Can you tell us the Greek? What does the Greek say? Sorry. <laughs> the Greek says the exact same thing. Consider it pure joy. Well, maybe there are nuances to it. What does the literal translation say? What does the ESV say? What do these other versions? Well, they, they say pretty much the exact same thing. Consider it pure joy. Almost like a slap in the face, isn't it? Someone's just lost something significant in their life, their income, their job, their loved one, their health, their future, their dream. How do you consider that pure joy? How do you tell them to, hey, consider it pure joy? It just feels like it feels rude. But you see, it's because we still think so much in the realm that joy is tied to our situations in life. We think of pure joy. We think of a kid splashing around in a pool for the first time. We think of a kid tasting soda for the first time. We think of, we think of, a, of a dog who runs into snow for the first time. And we, we, we look at pictures of that and we say that is pure, unadulterated joy on the look of that child and the look of that animal and the look of that fill in the blank. That's what we think joy is because we still connect joy to our present situation. And that's why we can't consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many different kinds. Because we think it unthinkable and unconscionable for us to think that anything could be pure joy when we're going through that. Paul says, well, I'm sorry, what James says is, you cannot choose the kind of trials that you have, but here's something more important. You can choose your response and how you respond to it because in any situation, guys, it's not about what actually happens. It's about how you respond to what happened. You can, we're all watching a football game. Okay? We're all watching a football game. We all want the Kansas City Chiefs to win, but the New England Patriots win. Okay? Some of us are so angry. Some of us are like, well, it's no big deal. Some of us are like, well, we didn't really have any skin in the fight. Someone's like, it doesn't matter. We're watching the exact same thing, but our response to it is different. You can't choose what happens in this life. Oh, you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me, what is your life? It's a mist that's here today and it vanishes tomorrow. We have no glory. We have no weightiness. The weightiness belongs to God. All glory be to Christ alone who holds every situation and every circumstance of our lives in his sovereign, mighty hand. You, it's not about what happens to you. It's not the fact that dad treated you badly. Two people can look at the exact same thing and say, you know what, I'm going to make it better. Another person says, I'm not, not going to be able to recover from this. Two people sitting in prison. The same cause, the same crime, the same sentence, one person looks and all they see are the bars that keep them ensnared into that prison. Another person looks beyond the bars and sees the stars that symbolize a new hope and a new glory. Some people see the stars, some people see the bars. It's not about what you go through, it's about how you respond to it, it's about how you see it. And what Paul is saying, I'm sorry, what James is saying here is consider it. Pure joy 
whenever you face trials of many kinds. In fact, what he's saying is an accounting term for those of you who are into finance and accounting. He's saying to consider means to move something over from one side of the ledger, from your negatives into your positives. Everyone in life, he says, the natural eye sees trials in the negative. He says when you consider it pure joy, he's saying you take it from the realm of the negative and you move it into the realm of the positive because there's something more that's going on. God looks at you and he says, you can't see it now, but I see something that you don't see. That's a far more value than you ever thought could be possible based on the can of Barbasol that you're opening up that day. You can't choose how or when the trials come, but you can choose your response to it. Tim Keller is one of the great, uh, Eunice uh, cited him, referenced him. Tim Keller is one of the great uh, pastors, preachers, authors, defenders of the faith, apologeticists of our generation. He's going through pancreatic cancer, which, you know, you, you can hear what you want about it, but Google will tell you that probably your life expectancy from diagnosis, from the diagnosis, you're already start stage four, because by the time they find it, it's, it's too late for you to do much. A year to two years max is probably what they give the majority of people, the great majority of people. He recently did an interview, it was a podcast with, uh, I think it was with the Gospel Coalition, I forgot who exactly, Kevin DeYoung was on there and some other people. But as I was scrolling through some weeks ago, um, or yeah, some, some weeks ago, that podcast, um, I saw these different comments saying, this is Keller at his finest. Right? This is the best interview, That this is vintage Tim Keller. And so I looked at the indexing, and what is he talking about? He's talking about you know, celebrity Christianity. He's talking about, you know, X, Y, Z, this, that, and the other. Uh, he's talking about his cancer, uh, his, his journey with cancer, all these different things. So there was nothing seemingly remarkable about it, but as I began to listen, I was listening on double speed, so I can just kind of try and pick up what's going on without spending all the time to filter through it all. But one of the things that they, talk, they talked about was his cancer. and how remarkably at peace he was in the midst of the cancer. Um, he's gone through sessions of chemotherapy, he's done all that stuff, and um, they said, how can, you, how can you be at such peace? Obviously you're a Christian, but everybody, everybody has different experiences. And he basically went on to say that, listen guys, like every one of us, every one of us, okay, every one of us is gonna die. Death is going to come to every single one of us. At some point in all of our lives, you will either come to my funeral first or I will go to yours. Something is going to get us and lead us to the doorway of death. He said, for me, it's probably going to be cancer. For other people, it's a car accident. For some, someone else, it's going to be something else. But it's going to happen to all of us. Okay? But as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of it. It's going to happen. But there's a peace and there's a joy that runs through it because the resurrection matters to me because the resurrection is real and it changes everything about the way that we live. I've said this often, but 
my seminary professor would tell us that when an unbeliever gets cancer, a believer gets cancer also, so that people who don't know the Lord can see a difference in the way the Christian deals with pain versus those who don't know him. When a Christian loses their job, when a non-Christian loses their job, a Christian does also. When a non-Christian gets rejected from the college of their dreams, a, a Christian does as well, so that the world can see the difference in how we respond. What James says is the way that we show the difference is that we consider it pure joy when we go through trials of many kinds. Not that we're thankful that someone has cancer. No. We don't rejoice for the trials, but we can rejoice in the trials. That's what makes us not masochistic or sadistic when it comes to thinking about other people. We're not thankful that I lost my job, but we can give thanks and rejoice in the midst of losing the job. We don't rejoice because our parents are abusive to us. We rejoice even in the midst of it because we trust that there's something that the Lord God is doing. What about us? What about you? As you go through the trials in life of various kinds. Maybe they're big. Maybe they're little. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's, it's hope that feels like, man, the, the longer I hope for this, the more hopeless I become. Maybe that's your trial. Maybe it's a thorn in the flesh at work. Maybe somebody that you hate you can't stand. Maybe somebody here. Maybe it's a, it's a marriage you feel stuck in because you're, you're a child of God and you have no other options but to stay. May, what, what, what is a trial in your life? But can you see it the way that the Bible says we can see it. He's not telling us, hey, hey, just, guys, just tough it out. What doesn't kill you will only make you stronger. Just endure it. Long-suffering. Be patient. It's not what he's saying. What he is saying, what James is saying, what Keller is saying, what James is saying, seven years, ten years after Jesus, he's saying this is the, the, the purest form of Christianity. It reflects itself in this, that if you have Jesus in your life, it changes everything. Can I ask you, has that been true in your life? Is the knowledge and the presence of Jesus in your life, does that change things for you? It doesn't just change things. It says it changes everything. Everything is different because of Jesus. Everything is different. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, can you consider it pure joy because of what God is doing? See, the trials don't mean that God is not there. That's why we can rejoice. Because the trials are probably where you and I begin to experience the presence of God in a way unlike anything that we've ever experienced before.
In fact, if you, if you move the words around, it seems as if James is saying, you might know joy in this life through all the things you go through, but you will not be able to experience the truest kind of, purest kind of joy apart from the trials that you go through in life. That's where we experience the supernatural kind of joy that he wants to give, to, that he alone can give to us and that no trial can ever take from you. Second thing we see, can't choose when or how, but you can choose how you respond. You can choose the way that you respond to the trials. How do we do that? The last thing. You can consider it pure joy. You can embrace the trials. You can do all that stuff because they are the means, okay? They're the way that God makes you mature. Okay, we can find joy because your trials are the way that God makes you mature. If you don't want to be mature in Christ, then I suppose you won't see trials as pure joy. But for all who want to follow Christ on the narrow road, for all who want to be like Jesus, have you ever said, God, oh, to be like you. God, I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be more loving. I want to be more patient. I want to be more persevering. I want to be more kind. I want to be more like Jesus. Lord, this world is dying to know who you are. Change me like only you can. Father, I pray, make me more like Jesus, if you've ever wanted that, you've ever prayed for that, then your heart is in a place where it's ready to consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. He's saying here, what the trials are doing is they're, they're, they're testing your faith. Okay? They're testing that. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about uh, giving this parable? And he says there, there, there are four kinds of people in the world. The person who's preaching is throwing the seed of the gospel out into the world. And there's four kinds, within here, there's four kinds of people also. There's one out of the four who have good soil and they receive the word of God and it bears fruit. He's saying these are Christians. And in your life there will be fruit 30, 60, even 100 fold what was sown into your life. He's saying you're a Christian. But Jesus says out of the four kinds of people, three of them are not fruitful people. Three of them are not followers of Jesus because you know the gospel has taken root because the gospel will bear fruit. Jesus says out of the four people, there are three who aren't actually Christians. They come, they receive, they hear the word of God. But there's no fruitfulness in their lives. Why? What is the litmus test? How do you know what does the weeding out process look like? Jesus says, the testing comes, the trials come, 
And those who are followers of Christ will stand in the midst of testing, while those who are not, thorns grow up and choke it, the worries of this world will grow up and will make it unfruitful. They receive it with gladness. Difficulty comes, comes hot. The enemy comes, steals the seed. The separation, how do you know? How do you know that you're a follower of Jesus? It's in where you go, how you respond when the tests of life come. That's what Jesus says. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? Are you going to stay with me? Are you going to cling to me? See, what James is not saying is you've got to tough it out. Perseverance, it says, right? Perseverance. A testing of your faith develops perseverance. He's not saying uh, the trials of life are going to see whether you're tough enough. It's not what he says. It says perseverance must finish its work, and at the end it's that you may be mature and complete. In other words, the test is not about how strong you are. The test is not how tough you can be. It's not a test of your toughness, your courage. It's a test of your faith. And a lot of times faith looks like God, I can't do it anymore. I don't have enough strength. I don't have the toughness. I don't have what it takes. And so I throw my life upon all that you are. The trials are not testing to see how good and strong and awesome you are. It's asking you, do you see how good and awesome and strong God is? It's the testing of your faith. And only through the testing of your faith can we be used as instruments in the hands of God in this world? You want to be used by God? I want to be used by God. God will use the trials in our lives through the process of perseverance that we might become mature. I know that you and I would never entrust our lives to a pilot. We walk into a plane and we talk to the pilot See, he's got a bunch of decorations on him. How long have you been a pilot? Well, I've been studying in the field of aviation for 30 years. Back when I went to Embry-Riddle University, uh, I was number one in my class, 4.0 GPA. Later became a TA for the aero-whatever, aviation classes. I became a a professor and started teaching all of this stuff. Like, I know this stuff inside and out. I know what every control means. I know what every, everything about this contraption called a 787 Boeing, whatever it might be, that holds 300 people. So you begin to feel pretty confident in your pilot, and then you say, how many times have you made this particular flight? He's like, actually, I've never flown a plane before. (laughs) This is my first time. First time behind the cockpit. First time in the engine. First time flying a plane. I've studied it. I know everything. But I've never actually flown the plane. What we know, what we believe, can't be tested on a piece of paper. 
not in a way that shows our genuine understanding of faith. It's only tested in the trials and the hardships, the challenges of life. What will you do? What will you do when tomorrow the phone call comes of the news that you were least expecting and that you were most fearing? What will you do with that news? What will you do in that place? What will you do in that time? How do we respond to that? Perseverance, though, is not the end game. Perseverance means to remain under the trial. Right? It means we don't run away from it. We don't run to God. I'm sorry, we don't run away from God. We don't run away from church. We don't run away from communion. In fact, th those are the very places we need to go in the midst of the hardship. What is he saying? He's saying perseverance must finish its work. Perseverance is the means. What's the goal? That you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I don't lack peace. I don't lack joy. I don't lack love. I don't lack anything. I've got everything. I've got everything I need. How does that happen? It happens through the trials that we go through in life. What God is doing to fortify a church, to stand in the midst of a world that desperately needs to see the hope of Christ through us. Perseverance, finishing its work. What does that mean? It means in the midst of the trials, God is doing something so much deeper than we could ever see. What does that mean for us? Here's what that means. It means I know that some of us, many of us, are going through trials. Some of us, as soon as Daniel fast started, started going through trials. Spiritual warfare, absolutely. Another way to see it is trials and how we respond to it. Been some hardships, some difficulties, a lot of things that have come that have been hard. And if you're going through a trial, then the question I need to ask you is, man, what might God possibly be wanting to do in you? If we're going through trials, it means that God is doing something in us. If you're going through a hardship, it means that God is making new wine, where there's new wine, new freedom, new power. God is writing a new chapter in your life you would have never imagined before. What does God want to do? How would God want to use your life? Maybe you feel like up until now, my life has been so impotent and lacking power. God is saying, we're going to level up now, guys. You're going to enter into a new place if you stick with me. Let perseverance finish its work in you. God is doing something in you. He says, I see something. You don't see it now, but sometimes the greatest blessings, the most valuable blessings come disguised as things that we despise. And God is saying, consider it shifted over into the other category, pure joy, because I'm working in you ways that you don't see. What is he doing? He's testing us. He's exposing us. He's helping us to see where we are. He's humbling us in order that in our humility we would be exalted. In our weakness, his power would be made perfect in us. What is God doing? He's stripping us away from the love that we have for the things of this world. What good is having the great big home if we've got nothing else, if everything is falling apart? What good is it to have all the money in the world? In the face of a trial, we begin to realize, man, when things are not going well in life, everything I once held dear means nothing anymore to me. 
All the hobbies that I, I, I enjoyed, all the things that I collected, all my seashell collection, all of these things, what good are they? When everything else in life is falling apart, it, it, God is weaning us away from the things of this world. Do you understand it, people of God? Not that you would drive yourself deeper in love with the things of this life. Not that you would press yourself deeper into these false, illegitimate relationships that promise joy but never do. He's weeding us from our sin, weeding us from our idolatry, weeding us from the things of this world, and fastening our gaze upwards to believe that heaven is real and to see does that make a difference in the way that you live on earth now. The more people I know who go home into glory, the more my heart longs for heaven. The more my heart believes that heaven is real. The more my heart believes that this world is not it, that the things in this life cannot satisfy. The new home we move into, I love it, but I'm not wedded to it. The things that I have that I love to have, I love it, but I'm not wedded to it. I don't want my heart to be latched onto the things of this life. And through the trials that you and I go through, God is lifting our eyes upwards to see the beauty of Jesus, to see the reality of heaven. One of my buddies, when his, his, his one two-year-old daughter uh, was called home to be with the Lord God, rocked his world, changed everything. But he considers it now pure joy because he knows that in that, God is doing something within him to make him complete and mature, lacking nothing. And when he wrote his first book in the acknowledgments and the dedications, one of the things he wrote was to my daughter who's now in glory. You remind me every day of my life that this world is not my home. Have you become too fastened to life here on this broken planet? This world is not our home. We're just passing through. If your treasures are laid up way beyond the blue, then will you not long for heaven? If your treasures are there, if your glory is there, if your loved ones are there, if your Savior is there, should that not warrant a longing for glory that that's our home, not here on earth? It's not here. We've got a home in glory land that far outshines the sun. That's our home. And through the trials of life, God is not only stripping us, weaning us of a love for this life, but he's fastening our gaze upwards into glory so that we might be useful here on earth, causing us to fall in love with Jesus, to see him as more beautiful than anything that this world could give to us and of worth more value than anything that this world could ever rob from us. And ultimately what he's doing through the trials is he's making us more like Jesus. I want to be more like Jesus, but I don't want the trials. I want to be more like Jesus, but I don't want my friends to die. I want to be more like Jesus. I don't want my family members to be sick. I want to be more like Jesus, but I don't want my house to flood. God says, you want to be more like Jesus? Hold my hand. I'll make you more like him. It's not going to be easy. But I promise you that you persevere, 
then you will lack nothing. You'll be complete. You'll be mature. How do we, en- how do we endure? How do we persevere? Verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. He doesn't say to those who persevere because if you love him, you're going to persevere. He doesn't say to those who are strong, to those who are faith-filled, to those who are amazing, to those who are awesome. He says to those who love him because those who love him will cling to him no matter what situation we face in life, no matter what we go through. We're going to cling to him. We're not going to deny him. We're going to stay with him. We're going to love him. We're going to follow him till the very end and to realize that it was his love that anchored us all along. Because uh, 2,000 years ago, this is what Jesus did for us. Persevere means to remain under, and here's what Jesus did. He took the heavy weight of the cross upon himself. And he didn't say, this is heavy, this is rough, this is spiny, this is giving me splinters, this is piercing my nail, my, 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 my blood-scarred, whipped-open back. But he remained under it. Why? Because through the channels of time and future, with a vision of that, he looked at you and he looked at me and he looked at our waywardness, he looked at our sinfulness, he looked at the fact that we hated him, that we were enemies. And even so, with no desire for love for God within our hearts, he looked at us and he said, you don't see it now, but I see something in you that you could have never imagined was there. Something worth loving, something worth saving, something worth giving my life for. And he underwent the ultimate trial that you and I will never go through if we have faith in Christ. Taking the infinite wrath of God that you and I deserved upon himself, crying out at the last, it is finished, so that we would never doubt amidst our trials that God is with us, that he's strong, that he's good, and that he loves us so very much. We believe that. We understand that. We know that. We don't rejoice for the trials, but we rejoice in the trials because we know that he's with us and we know that his love will never fail. Let's pray together. So we pray. My friends, please, brothers and sisters, my beloved, please know that trials will come in life. but they will make us more like Jesus. They will cause us to love Jesus more. Maybe we're going through a pandemic collectively to remind us that our love meter for God has been low and that our comfort meter has been high. We've wanted comfort. We've wanted to avoid difficulty. But God says, here I am. I'm here with you. 
I'll never leave you. And I will allow you to experience the deepest joy, even in the midst of trials, because I'm with you. I'll never stop loving you. Can you pray? Father, help me to understand your love. Help me to receive your love in my heart so that I could love you in return. And then as I love you, that I would be able to persevere. And through my perseverance that I become mature, complete, lacking nothing. Lord, make me more like Jesus. Let's pray for a minute together like that. Ask the Lord's strength on those going through trials right now. You know some of your friends are with their family, with their health. It's with their future. It's with their friends. Let's pray for yourself and for your friends. Lord, may we love Jesus. May we persevere. May we long to see more of you. Let's pray together for a few moments, and I'll pray for us after that. Father in heaven, we have uh, sometimes said things like the greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. We've said things like all I once held dear, spent my life upon, all this world reveres wars to own, matters nothing now compared to knowing Christ. We've said things like God glorify my life, I'm sorry, glorify your name even at the expense of my life. For God, I lay down my life for you. It's easy to sing. It's hard to cash in with life. But Father, remind us that there will be no burden you ever lay upon our backs, that you will not be there to carry it with us. No trial that we go through that will crush us as long as you're with us. Nothing that we face that you and I cannot overcome together. For if God is for us, then who could ever be against us? Remind us of your great and precious promises, all that you do and all that you give in order that we might be all that we were meant to be. Thank you so much. May we be people whose deepest treasures are not in this life but are found in the life to come in glory. Help us to fall more in love with you and because of that love that you would give us perseverance and through that perseverance you would make us more like Jesus. Thank you so much. Pray these things in Jesus' name.